Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we bring this time to close where we have lifted up our voices together to sing these precious truths of your love that came running after us, of the praise and honor and glory that you deserve, the way you have worked in our lives as people, of the power you pour out into our lives over and over again. Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks. We come and we gather in the name of Jesus because he is our Savior. He is our King. He is our hope. He is our life. Remind us of that in these moments, Lord. So much of what tires us out is when we forget that we aren't our hope or that we can't fix our own lives and we chase our tails trying to make things work that we were never meant to make work. So today, Father, as we are here together and as we've talked about power that is unimaginable and glory that is under, uh, uh, unlimited, Father, you have brought us into this moment to turn our hearts back to you, to shake off whatever has tangled us up this week, bring us back to that spiritual reality in our soul, that eternal life that we've been given from Jesus Christ. Help us as your people to live up into it, to see it afresh, to know you deeper, to feel your presence in this moment, and to give our lives to you and follow you with all that we are. So this morning, Father, we, we turn our hearts to you. Speak to us now. In these moments, as we look into your word, teach us, instruct us, point us towards you. Help us to follow you by faith, we pray. For it's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Have a seat this morning. We're going to keep the lights down for just a second because we have an opportunity to show you uh, one of the things we do every year at Christmas time to be a blessing to others. Uh, we, were, uh, we had a great day yesterday serving our community, inviting them in, showing the love of Jesus. Here is another way that we can do that in the coming months. We call it Operation Christmas Child, and here's a, a little description about what we can do. This one is for you from Jesus. Jesus loves you, my friend. Jesus loves you. He loves you so much. I received these gloves that I really love. It's my favorite color. <laughs> yes. And I received this awesome mask that I'm going to scare my little sister and brother in the night with. <laughs> yes. And this pants. And I'm going to use them in every book I have for school. And these awesome <laughs> socks. And yeah, I just love it. my heart that there's somebody out there that wants to share God's word and even though we feel lost that God is not there that yes God exists and he hears our prayers <laughs> thank you All right, so basically what we do is there's a, an opportunity to get a, a shoebox back here on the table or multiple ones, and you and, and hopefully your family with you uh, fill that up with the things that they say, and then for very little amount of investment and time, we get to be a blessing to people around the world. So I want to invite you today. We're going to kick that off today back here. Yeah, you can turn those lights back up, right? Um, I want to invite you today to 
grab one of those shoe boxes to find out the information. I think we need it back in like four weeks, three weeks, something like that. Um, so we'll get them, we'll put them, bring them back in, put them on the table. It is a great practical way for us to discipline our souls to be givers and not takers, to people who see the needs of others instead of just our own, to minister to people that have no shot of ever giving anything back to us, which is a, a really good place for your soul and your spirit to be in. And parents, it's a great opportunity to show your children what matters in your soul and as we follow Jesus. So I would invite you, let's blow this, the, the, the um, numbers off the roof here as far as how many we, we bring back. Uh, grab a shoebox today or several shoeboxes and bring them back. We, we think that God will bless that in a great, great way. Um, I also want to remind you what I said at the beginning of the service. Wednesday night, we kick off two new, two new studies, and we have small group orientation. The signups on all of those are a little light, and I want lots and lots of people to come to those studies and to be part of small group orientation. So sign up today before you leave. Find rest. I think a lot of you people could find some rest in your soul, right? I think a lot of us have a lot of rush in us. Rest is something precious. It is something God gives us. Damon is going to lead that study. Uh, I wrote that about six years ago. I think you will be blessed by that. Uh, Dwight is doing a study I asked him to do on what does it mean to be a Pharisee. A lot of us come from backgrounds with following the rules meant following Jesus, and they're not the same thing. And we got all tangled up and mixed up in them. So uh, it's one of those times, they're only three-week studies, but I think they will be powerful. And I want you to sign up for them today, as well as a small group. If you want to be a host or a facilitator in the new year, we want to talk about what that means and what that is. So all those are happening here on Wednesday night this week. All right, take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We're talking about being in the world, but not of the world. And I think today, as we talk about, we're going to talk about today, this idea of power and what we do with power is one of the things that is, is most troubling to my soul, how we interact with this dynamic. So it's a very similar discussion. Last week, we talked about wealth. This week, we're talking about power. Things that the world thinks really are where it's at. They think those are the big deals. Wealth power. That is what you want to be. That, those are the people who have it all together. So I want to start by asking you, showing you my age, but I also want to ask if any of you recognize this character. Does anybody recognize? Who recognizes? It? Okay, okay, a couple of you. There you go. This was like a, a, a hot minute in the 80s, okay? This dude's name was The Greatest American Hero. That's right. Now, it was a ridiculous show. It was an absolute, I think it lasted like two, three seasons, all right? And the premise of the show, this is a high school English teacher, I think, something like that, and aliens came and gave him this suit, okay? And it was a suit of superpowers. He was supposed to go help the world with superpowers, but he lost the instruction booklet, so he had no idea what to do with the suit. So the whole show is him, like, he could never fly right. He always looked like he was like flailing and whatever, and then he would land in a crash in a heap, whatever, because he didn't know what the suit could do, right? And I thought about that as I thought about what we do with power, because I thought of this. It is a, it is a horrible thing to misuse power or to not know what to do with the power you have, to not know how to use, even in real life, not just in a TV show, but in real life, not having power and not knowing how to use it is a real waste. And I would say, in my experience, there are probably two mistakes that people make with power all the time. The first one is not knowing what kind of power you actually need. Wanting power 
because it looks powerful to you, but in the end, it's not going to do anything for you. Understanding what kind of power you actually need. And secondly, thinking about what kind of power, what would you do with power when you had it? So first thing, basically people think what I need for my own life is more say in my own life. I need more opportunity. I need more authority. I need, I need to be the boss. I need to be the person in charge. I need to have uh, the, the resources and the tools to fix my life. I need more of my power. That belief system can make people live very discontented because they look around at what they think they see in other people's lives and they say, well, if I had power like that person, then I would be okay. And we look to Jesus and we say, Jesus, why didn't you give me that kind of power? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? Why do I not have power to fix my life? It can make people live discontented. It can also make people live stressed. When you think that your power is supposed to fix your life, you are desperately always chasing control. You are trying to get on top of all the things that you believe you need to solve. And so you live under this tremendous weight because you have faith in your own power. I think today in our world, too many Christians have hope in human power. They get all excited about political processes and and power structures at work and and those kind of things, celebrity status and being known and lots of followers and stuff like that. This is what the world does with power. They gather power for themselves. Second mistake is they don't know what to do with it. They believe that, and most of us fall into this, like when I talk about being in the world but not of it, we're we're integrated with this world, it gets on us, and the world thinks this, whenever I get power, it should be used to make my life better. That's why I have power, so that I can make my life better, so that I can fix what matters to me. The world definitely thinks that people with power and money and fame and followers, those are the lucky ones. Those are the ones we aspire to be. They get the applause. They get the say-so. They get the attention of people. And so that's who you want to be. Believers, we don't believe that at all. And yet somehow it gets into us. There are places in Scripture that destroy these ideas for us, and we want to look at a couple of them today. But I'm just going to start by saying this. Daniel says a prayer in Daniel chapter 2. And one of the things he says in that prayer is that the Lord deposes kings and raises up others. What he's saying is God is in charge of who's in charge. Right? In Romans 13, Paul says very similarly, we should obey our civil authorities because he says this, quote, there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Some of us who have a lot of political activation need to really dig in to what Romans 13 requires of us as we interact in this world. There is no authority in this world except that which God has established. These are the words of Scripture. So as we look at those things, what what we learn is this. Power, even human power, comes from God. So the power that we have is really something that he gave us. And that changes, for us as believers, it changes everything about how we use power, how we hold power. If we were to believe like the world does, that power is a prize that we win and we see it as a chance to impose our will, our desires on others, 
then we will use power whenever we get it selfishly to satisfy our own needs and our own desires. But if power is something that comes from God and is given to us as a believer, I should be asking, why did you give this to me? What do you want me to do with it, right? Very different approaches to the idea of power. We want to use power for God's purposes, not our own purposes. I would say you might think you are powerless, but I guarantee you every single one of you have advantage in comparison to others. For example, if you have been in this church for more than four weeks, you have advantage over people who came today for their first time. I have a lot of people who have told me over the years, yeah, I sat down next to somebody the whole time and they, did, they never said hi to me at all. And I'm like, so how long have you been here? I've been here three weeks. Guess what? That was their first Sunday with us. Like we look around and we have expectation that other people's have an advantage over us. I wonder what you're doing with the advantage of your level of comfort here for people who just showed up, right? This is what we do with power. If you're a parent, you have a big say in your children's lives, big say. What do you do with that? Do you use it to make them not bother you? Do you do it to try to make them look like what you think will make you look good? Parenting is supposed to be about them, not you. Will you use it to enforce what you want? Or will you use it for the good of your children? And when I say that in today's world, it sounds like I'm saying never discipline your children. It's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> I think disciplining, correcting your kids is an absolute necessity. And without it, you are not obeying God's instructions in Scripture. But why you do it and how you do it make a huge difference. Like in school, did the popular kids use their popularity to help those who are on the outside? This is the way the world uses power. But a believer, if you're in school right now, a believer uses whatever advantage that they have to help those who don't have that advantage. This is the way we use power. We use it differently. We see a different value in what we do with influence and authority and advantage. So we're going to start in uh, Matthew chapter 20 because Jesus made this very explicit in his ministry. And I want us to just take today, put our heads around what Jesus said and what Jesus did and ask us to follow it. So here is Matthew's discussion of this. Verse 20, it says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons which is James and John, the mother of Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. That would be the sons. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Man, there is so much here. And I think if, if the church of Jesus Christ 
could embrace this, if the people of God could really embrace this, I think we would not only be set free, I think the power of God could flow through us in a different way, right? Jesus says we are different. The theme of this and really all of the surrounding passages, the way that Matthew writes the gospel of Matthew is he gathers a bunch of incidents together around a theme. And the theme of the incidents before this and after this, including this, are, is this phrase, the first will be last and the last will be first. If you go backwards and you go forwards, you'll see that phrase over and over again. The first will be last and the last will be first. This is one of the ways Jesus is describing what he means by saying this. His disciples have heard this, but they don't get it. It does not sink into their brains. And so James and John, who are already in the inner circle of Jesus, have their mother. The implication here is that they said, Mom, could you ask Jesus? It would look bad for us too. So could you ask him? So she, you can almost see these two sons, these two apostles who are pillars of you know, the church through all time. They're walking up behind their mom, right, to Jesus. And like, go ahead, mom, ask him. And mom's like, hey, Jesus, could these guys be important? And they're like, and they're like yeah, I don't know why she's asking. I'm not sure what. So Jesus turns to them and says, will you be able to drink the cup? And they said, yeah, we will. And he says, yeah, you will. See, they don't have any idea how the, what Jesus says, you don't have any idea how the kingdom works. Jesus says to them, you don't understand. We don't operate like human power structures operate. We are not like the world. The Gentiles do it this way. We don't do it like that. I wonder if you can tell the difference between the way the world operates with power and Christians operate with power. And by the way, the, those two are not the only two who missed it because the other 10 are indignant. It says, Matthew says, they were indignant because they're like, how dare you ask for what we all want? None of them got it. They were all like, no, we should be the ones who are important. They can't get their head around what's different in Jesus' kingdom. It is still our struggle today. It's part of why they never saw the cross coming. And it's part of why we get so, so discouraged when our crosses come. Because we never get what Jesus is trying to teach us about what we do with power. Power is not to escape. Power is not to make my life pleasurable or full of leisure. Power is not to make my life pleasant. Power is not even given for me. Power is given by God to me for some different purpose. We are so immersed in a world where we're trying to keep up or get ahead that we start to see power the way they see power. But we forget that almost every win that we have by the world's standards is completely empty. It is not, there's not one win that you will have in your life following the world's pattern of power that you will be celebrating a hundred years from now. Not one. Because that kind of win is a world's win and it wins temporary stuff that just fades away. The world's way of winning always fades out. So Jesus says, not so with you. And he says this, power is given to people so that we can serve. And he uses words that are like a punch in the face to the disciples. Words like slave and servant. Leading is serving. What? Yeah, we've heard that. But is that what you think of when you see God give you advantage? Well, I've been given this advantage, so I've got some people to serve with it. Or is it like, finally, I have more power. I can do what I want. I can make my life what it should have been all along. 
it means that a win is different with Jesus. A win in Jesus' kingdom can even look like a loss. Do you know that? Let's think about the, the biggest loss in history. Was it a win? When Jesus died on the cross, when, when all of his enemies succeeded in taking his life, the biggest loss in history, was it a win? See, this is the kingdom of God. We live in a different economy. And sometimes we don't spend enough time with him or enough time in his word. We're not faithful enough at church. We're not digging in enough to hold on to the truth that should direct our lives. We just drift into the way that the world thinks about power. Jesus says, not so with you. God uses us in our weakness. He tells us that we have to throw away pride and depend on his strength. And there are patterns of these things in scripture. Like in the Old Testament, there are 10 commands. You guys all know there are 10 commands, right? Okay, so 10 commandments. One of those 10 commandments is take a day off. Like, I love that command. That's a great command. How many of you do, by the way? <laughs> yeah, not so much today. Take a day off. The idea was it was a practice that called God's people to act like they didn't need to grasp power to control their lives. It was a day, and it was radical. It was a day where they said, instead of me trusting in me getting it all done, I'm going to act like God is in charge today to remind me through the whole week that I don't actually have control over this whole thing and I don't actually want control over this. I'll be faithful six days a week, but one day a week I'm gonna stop and remind myself that he's the one in charge and that my trust is fully in him. It was a pattern to choose not to do what I could do so that I could remember and hold on to God is the one providing and protecting. In the New Testament, we see it everywhere. It is the only power, it is only the power of Jesus that creates what matters. Not numbers, not dollars, not fame. Those things are not a win. Not popularity, not a good looks, not uh, advancement at work. These are not wins to believers. But for too many of us, they are presumptively always a win. What if I asked you, what is the biggest win there can be for your life in the coming week. Do we have a sense of what would matter? Like, I think we had fun yesterday, but do you know how big of a win that was? Do you know how many lost people showed up on our church property and saw the, the love of God being poured out? Do you know how eternal that was? And maybe it just felt like, well, I'll go if it's good weather, or I'll go if I've got time, or maybe I could donate a little bit of this or a little bit of that. It's, that's fine. It's not a big deal. I got other important things to do in my life. Do you know how big of a win it is to serve in our kids' ministry and show a little child how much Jesus matters and to maybe change their whole life? But you know what, what is always a struggle? Finding people who hold children's ministry as a value and who will sign up to volunteer to step out of what you could get and give instead. Like this is the way we struggle with advantage and opportunity. This week, I would say, if you were, had the opportunity to bring somebody to Jesus, that's the biggest win you could have this week, isn't it? Amen. How many times has the eternal win happened in my life from what looks like a win to this world? How many times has God done eternal stuff through me chasing power and chasing self-promotion 
and chasing comfort. How many times has an eternal win come from what looks like a win to the world? Almost never. And yet we chase it just like they do. Jesus says, here's how you get your head straight. Understand this, that when you get power, when you're a leader, when you're in charge, when you have authority, here's what you do with it. You become a servant. <laughs> you become a servant. What is that? Does that mean just go around like, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Just being a servant to everyone? No. <laughs> it's not just asking everyone what they want and doing that. Serving others is about doing what is eternally good for them. Whether at times it is being quiet or at other times it is speaking up. Whether it is comforting someone or confronting someone. Whether it's giving them a hand or letting them learn by doing it themselves. The, the, the idea is we serve other people by looking out for their best. As best as we understand it, with a humble heart and with a love that pours out through us, we serve them by doing what's good for them. Not because they like it necessarily or don't like it, but because we're serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, some of the problem is our seers, our eyes, our, the, the eyes of our soul aren't perfect. So we don't always know uh, uh, which approach to take perfectly, what approach to take. So what do we do? We have the Holy Spirit. And we listen. We learn how to listen to him so that as we work, we're being faithful to God's cause and we're walking by faith so that the, the ways that we serve, he takes and he pours out his grace on them so they work out to be eternal wins. We don't have to put all the pieces together. Think about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph is a 17-year-old boy who is the favorite son of his father, special coat. He doesn't have to go out and work with his brothers, all this kind of stuff. And from 17-year-olds to 30 years old, his life is a series of miseries. Being, being almost killed by his brothers, to being sold by his brothers as a slave, to being betrayed by someone that he, he served faithfully um, and thrown into prison, to being forgotten in prison. To, eventually, he winds up second in charge to Pharaoh. But for 13 years, it was loss after loss after loss. And the reason that God took him out of that and to play the place that he had him, to give him authority, is because he learned this. I don't need to navigate by what I feel like is going on. What I need to navigate by is the God that I trust. And so even as I take loss after loss after loss and my life looks hopeless and I feel like I will never be able to be who I ever was, I will never be able to live up to the promise God gave me, I'll never see my family again. What he did over 13 years is trusted that God's win was better than his win. And he just walked by faithful, being faithful over and over and over again. This is how we Walk by faith. We don't need to see the win. We just have to actually follow Jesus. Another thing a servant does not do. A servant does not fight for their rights. As a matter of fact, it's highly inappropriate for a servant to fight at all. They, the world sees strength and power and, and, and overcoming and steamrolling people. The louder you shout, the more people have to hear you. But see, servants, they don't get loud. Servants don't fight. The world is full of shouters. But believers, when they get power, they don't turn up the volume. They get down on their knees. The night Jesus was betrayed, the first thing he did in the upper room, John, as, as John records it, is wash their feet. Deliberately take on the role of a servant. 
If the Lord, I want to say this to you today, if the Lord has put you in a position of advantage, and I believe everybody here has some position of advantage, if the Lord has put you in a position of advantage, he most likely did it for someone else's benefit. As a matter of fact, even being a believer, the advantage you have of knowing Jesus, that is really for someone else's benefit, isn't it? So you can go share with someone who doesn't know Jesus what it means to know Jesus. If you're like, I'm a believer and you're not, ha ha, I'm better than you. Is that entirely inappropriate for a Christian? Right? We, we get that. So every advantage that God has given you is given for someone else's benefit. That's what Jesus did. And Paul says, we're supposed to follow his example. So over in Philippians uh, chapter two, verses three to five, here's what, here's what Paul says and connects it to following how Jesus lived. He says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about how he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death. How much, let me ask you a question, see if you were listening. How much are we supposed to do out of selfish ambition? Nothing? Like, does he mean nothing? Like, we're not supposed to operate in it at all? How am I supposed to live in a world where ambition gets you ahead when I'm not supposed to do anything out of selfish ambition? How do I do that? See, this is where the world grabs a hold of us, gets inside of us, tangles us up. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. The word refers to working for hire. It was an expression of looking at situations like, what's in it for me? If I do that, what's in it for me? This idea of selfish ambition was, I can be nice to other people as long as I was looking for what's in it for me. You owe me a favor now? Okay, that works for me. It was like the, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, or always looking for the angle. The word vain conceit is a combination of words that literally means a person who wants to be higher than others. A person who wants to get praise from others, but has empty, no valid reason to be proud. Spiritually speaking, it's somebody who wants everybody to think you're something, but it's never founded on anything eternal, anything solid, anything real. It's just because you have, maybe you have a special ability, maybe you have a special talent, maybe you're an attractive person, maybe you have a lot of money, maybe you're a successful business person, whatever, and you say, now everybody look at me. And Paul says, but it's empty. <laughs> There's no reason for people to think you're something. It's just world stuff that's fading away. It's all going to be gone. Nothing, none of this is going to matter to you in 100 years, and you're trying to puff yourself up by it. He says, instead, instead of chasing that, we should be different, not naturally interacting with people out of self-interest. We are to do nothing in this mode. How do we do that? He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Look to their interests, not your own. What he says is embrace humility by patterning into your soul, putting others' needs ahead of your own. Now, you are not God, so you can't do that universally. You cannot put everyone's needs ahead of your own. You just don't, you can't do that. But what he says is in your relationships. So the people that are around you, do you look to what's good for them over what's good for you? 
the, I, the, the suggestion under it in, in practical terms is this. You are so good at knowing what you need that you have to act like you don't care at all about what you need in order just to balance it out a little bit. To even be any good at seeing someone else's need, you have to try the best you can to completely ignore your own need because you'll never completely ignore it. It will always be there. But you've got to understand how to take what you've been given and serve others with it. In humility, look to the needs of others. Embrace humility. He's not saying look to their comfort. He's not saying look to their wants. He's saying look to what they need. That is in contrast to selfish ambition and vain conceit. Put your eyes on others, their needs. Choose to elevate them as a habit so you're not sucked into the world's mindset. Reject pride by choosing humility. Reject being the center of your story and make others the center of your story. That's what Jesus did is what Paul says. In your relationships, be like Jesus. That's what Paul says. So since that's what Jesus did, and that's who we follow, we're supposed to take that and use that in our own life. I want to look at one more thing in Ephesians chapter 4 before we close today, because this is, what this is the way that this applies in the church. And I think we can use what he says about the church and use it, again, as an example of what we're supposed to do in our lives. Why does God give us advantage and power? So much of what has gone wrong over the centuries in church is due to this exact issue, that churches have operated with power structures like the world instead of power structures like Jesus told us to. So much of what's gone off the rails is because we operated like who's in charge and who gets a say and I decide what carpet we have and I decide when our services are and I decide what music we get to live. Like, like authority is the thing right? Power is the thing. The final say is the thing. But that's exactly what Jesus said it's not supposed to be. Because when church leaders act in power like those who don't know Jesus, the church gets dysfunctional really quick. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, here's why God gave church leaders power. Read this with me in verse 11 to 13. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what Paul says is this. We were given authority, leaders in the church were given authority, so that believers will be built up. And as you're built up, you're supposed to then serve. In other words, this is supposed to be a serving competition. I serve you, you serve one another, we all serve. Who's better at serving? Am I better at serving? You better at serving. Who's best at serving? We got to serve, right? That's the idea. This is, this is the definition of a spiritually healthy church. And so as a leader, we are supposed to faithfully use our position for the people that I lead so that you will be unified, so that you will be mature, so that you will be fully connected to Jesus. That is my calling. That as a church and each of us individually, we are served in the love of Jesus. That's what I'm supposed to do. Now, I can't do that. I'm not Jesus. So I'm going to take all of my fallibilities and all of my weaknesses, whatever, and do the best I can and trust God's grace to cover the rest, right? But that's what I'm shooting for. I also can't perfectly grab power. I'm not going to succeed in either direction. But what I am going to do is I'm going to follow Jesus down this path, serving one another in love. You mean that when I'm in charge, my ideas can't dominate? 
You mean that I'm not in charge so that I look like a great leader and people are impressed with me? You mean that's not the point? Exactly. That's not the point. I am to use all of my power and my authority and my influence for your benefit. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do too. With all of the opportunities that God gives you. That's why God gives power. And that's how believers use power differently. Instead of using it selfishly, we use it to benefit people under our authority. So to apply this, look at the advantages God's given you. Why did God give them to you? Who is supposed to benefit from that? If you're the boss at work, are you this kind of boss? Do your employees benefit from you being the boss or do you benefit from you being the boss, right? If you're a parent, who benefits from your parent? Your eyes need to be on what they need, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to grow to maturity, both in life and in Jesus. I've said this many times to parents. You're not raising babies. You're not raising kids. You're raising adults. That's where they're going. You gotta be looking down the road. Not for, oh, I want to hold them. I want to keep them. I want, I'm too, it's too busy. It's too much. It's not any of that. It's what do they need to grow? What do they need to be launched? What do they need to, that's how I change and follow Jesus in this. So many ways we can apply it, but I'll let spirit do that with us. All I'm going to say is this, this world that we live in that you're about to walk out into is full of power struggles and power plays, isn't it? It's the dynamic all around us. It is the currency that they think is the most valuable. Christians too often get caught in trusting the power of humans, riches, government, fame, personality, but believers, not so with us. We know better. Our true and meaningful power comes from God alone. That's why we use it how Jesus tells us to use it. We serve one another in love. The challenge for us is this week, where can you do this? And where do you need to clean out your mind from the world's idea of power? Every one of us have influence. Every one of us have advantage. Will we see with eyes like Jesus? Will we lay down our opportunity to be selfish and serve others in humility? I pray the Lord will take us forward in this this week. Would you close with me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Father, this morning, these are things that are so unnatural to us. And yet for us as believers, we have this embedded in our soul. I pray that you would help us to see this, to understand it. I pray that you would help us to live it, that you would guide our steps, that your spirit's voice in our souls would be clear, true, strong, and recognizable, that you would teach us as your people to live differently with the advantage, the opportunity, the authority, the power that you've given to us. Let us use it like our Savior. Let us follow his example. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.